John Safran, thank you for submitting to this involuntary interrogation. No, no, no. Always happy to uh, be beaten. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. Dom, today's subject is a repeat offender against Australia's national treasures. He's a man who's gotten on the wrong side of Ray Martin, Shane Warne, even Rove McManus. It's uh, John Saffron. Oh, yes, he's been on our radar for years. From when he started with Race Around the World, moving on to shows like Music Jamboree, John Saffron vs. God, Race Relations, then a subversive show on Triple J. It's quite a rap sheet. Yeah, but it gets worse. Recently, he's been researching true crime. First, he had that book, Murder in Mississippi, and now a new book where he hangs out with extremists of all kinds right here in Australia, Don. Oh, hangs out. I know his type. Oh, they pretend they want to expose their subjects in the name of journalism while all the time they're getting radicalised themselves. Look at Pilger. Every true blue patriot wants John Saffron stopped and we're just the guys to do it. John, could we start by getting your full name, please? Uh, John Michael Safran. Right. Any aliases? Uh, When I was in year seven, I decided I wanted to be known as Michael, just, you know, one of those random things to do. So I started telling teachers, my name was Michael, and they'd say, no, it says John here, John Mike. And I said, yeah, yeah, but everyone just calls me by my middle name. So that lasted for about a term until um, the first parent-teacher's night. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? In which the... The teacher was saying, anyway, um, Michael Safran. And goes, wait, no, we're, we're John Safran, Michael. And yeah, it just fell over then. So I had to you go back to being John. I was, so I was Michael for one term. So you started the pranking early, in other words. That wasn't a prank. That was me just exploring different, uh, you know, sides to myself. A very, like very low level kind of name fluid type things. Lo- or low level identity fraud. <laughs> yes. This could be useful for us, so we'll, we'll note that you're comfortable with different names. Yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Uh, what's your age? Me, I'm 44. And uh, religion. You, may, you uh, may have commented on this at some point in the past, John. I uh, generally like to keep it low-key, but it, yeah, it does occasionally come out in my shtick. Um, I'm, in fact, uh, Jewish. What, uh, what particular? Brand. Brand of <laughs> Judaism. Oh, <laughs> uh, just, uh, what's that one where you say one thing but do another? I'm that one. Hypocritical? <laughs> so- yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how interesting it is, but it, it's like, so my family were like te- technically speaking like orthodox, but they weren't religious. It's, it's just, I'm telling you, your audience will be just so bored if I go into the detail. I, I'm like filtering myself. This is not for the audience. This is this is for <laughs> our files. Oh yeah, I see what and, you mean. And the Australian government here, sure. Because okay, in, in your book, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail. But you mentioned yeah. that some of your fellow classmates, who were very orthodox, used to actually stone uh, less orthodox <laughs> synagogues. Isn't that right? Oh yeah, or different. Yeah, and absolutely of this. Uh, 
different uh, strand called Messianic Judaism, where they, my Orthodox friends felt that was too far outside the realm of normality and that stones had to be th- thrown at it. Fair enough. <laughs> what, what's your star sign? Uh, Leo. Do you have lion-like qualities? Well, what about my beard? <laughs> do, but I, I guess lions don't have beards, do they? I don't know. It I, is I, the right colour, though. We'll give you that. People, when they ask me, oh, what's your star sign? And they guess and, and they get it wrong seven times. And then finally I go, I'm a Leo. And they go, ah, yes, you're very Leo-like. They're, yeah, people say I'm Leo-like, but I don't know what that means. But I'm happy to go with it. I think it means you eat your young. Ah, yes. Do you ever eat your young? Uh, no, but I have eaten, um, I once ate a hedgehog in West Africa. <laughs> that definitely counts. <laughs> Lions do that all the time, I think. Yeah. Uh, where did you grow up, John? A North Baldwin in Victoria. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> that, that, that means pop. nothing to us. So can you yeah. describe North Baldwin? What kind of environment well, was it? God, I got in trouble. It, it's very... I found it a bit static, if that makes sense. Like I had... There were little fr- I'd like, like I loved the primary school there, but... To put it this way, when I'm, I would be so happy to talk about my time in North Baldwin for my shtick, but whenever I do, like no one, it just doesn't have the energy and it doesn't have the elements to it that people find uh, interesting. Like they, like I, because then I moved in high school, I moved to East St Kilda, which is a real Jewish area with bagel shops and synagogues and grandparents and big furry hats and side locks. And then as soon as I talk about that, like everything comes alive and people want to hear more about that. That so, is more interesting, uh, yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so for some reason, it's sort of like been erased from my record, my North Baldwin thing. I'd be happy to do it. I'm just, it's just that no one's interested. There's no, there's no market for John growing up in the, sort the of Baldwin static, years. Yeah, the Baldwin years. <laughs> Were there tensions with South Baldwin? Was there, were there gang activities back in those days? There, uh, no, that was, that was part of the problem. There was never anything <laughs> as, as interesting as gang activities going on in uh, North Baldwin. What's the most illegal thing you did when you were very young, like under the age of 10? I stole um, a block of chocolate from the North Baldwin Coles. Oh, my goodness. I put it down, I put it down my pants. And was I, even rem- I re- even remember it. It was... I don't. It wasn't like Neapolitan, but it was something like that. It, it wasn't just b- brown chocolate, and it wasn't just white chocolate. It was like rainbow chocolate or something. Or it, it maybe I'm just multicultural chocolate. Did you get in trouble for it? No, I got away with it. Mm. <gasps> Did you put it down the back or the front of your pants? Because putting chocolate down the back of the pants is yep. comedy. No, no, it was the side where along my hip bone. Fair enough. I was a thin child with big pants. Have you ever been arrested? I don't know what arrested means, in it, but can you tell me if this is well, true? Having if been it, arrested, yeah. <laughs> they come, and that's how they turned me, actually, the Border Force, um, they come up to you and they say, I'm placing you under arrest. You know if you've been arrested, they search you, and uh, you can't go to the USA without going to the consulate, not that I'm bitter. Oh, really? So you would no, know because if you've been arrested. Okay, th- no, this is what happened. i, I tell you why I, I ask this is because I once... In, as part of a, some television um, hijinks, I placed a remote control seagull with a cigarette in its beak onto the grounds of the MCG to then send out to Shane Warne because he was trying to stay off the fags because he had to fulfil this 
Nicorette contract of not smoking. I'm glad you so, raised this, John, actually, because we, we take offences against cricket very seriously. Yeah. Uh, so, you cost Shane Warne how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, was it? Well, well, I placed it down once and the police warned me and I said, oh, sorry. And then, then it was 10 minutes later and I'm down the other side and I place it down again because we hadn't got the shot for the... TV hijinks and that's when the police got me and they gave me a ticket and I had to turn up to the magistrate's court. The case was dismissed. But does that mean I was arrested or not? No. Not arrested, but no. certainly on the books. Let's just say that your record um, is not silent on that point. Uh, and if you want that record expunged in return for some sort of deal. Okay, cool. Don, can I see you outside for a second? What do you reckon? I reckon we got him. Total leverage right there. We can flip this guy. We own this guy. Charles, he got a ticket once. And the larceny stuff. The chocolate bar? Didn't he get away with that? Uh-uh. We've got him on tape. He's going to go down unless he turns. I don't think he's going to betray his friends and family just for a chocolate bar. Just you wait. He'll turn. He will turn. Mark my words. Let's go back in and find out. So, John, uh, obviously when you first came to the attention of authorities, you were travelling around the world, in fact, racing around the world for an ABC series, leaving, a, a, may I say, a trail of Interpol records <laughs> wherever you went. What made you decide to go and, uh, and start doing television? Uh, I was always trying out different things uh, to try to get into the creative field, but I didn't know exactly what that was. So I was kind of all flustered and just sparks were flying out of me in all directions. You know, so I was one of those kids who tried to, in primary school, draw comic strips and then I couldn't draw and then I tried to form bands and that didn't work. Yeah, Raspberry Cordial, if I recall. Yes, 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 that was one of the bands. So that was just my thing, but I, I never particularly thought one way or the other about television and didn't think about, I don't think I'd, I'm not saying I'd never seen a documentary, but it, like, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't like, one day I will be a filmmaker. But then ABC just put on an ad saying they're looking for young people who haven't been in the media to submit a short documentary and the ones they liked the most, they'll send those kids around the world to film more. And so it was just like another thing. It was a bit like, oh, yeah, I tried that thing to draw comic strips and that didn't work and the band didn't work. Now I'll try this. And, yeah, so that's how I ended up there. And what was the highlight of that project? I mean, you did a lot of stuff. This is the personal highlight was when I put a voodoo curse on an ex-girlfriend because <laughs> I tell you why. For the first couple of weeks, I was floundering, trying to figure out what, like I wanted to do something kind of a bit weird and funny, but I hadn't quite worked out what that meant. <laughs> and then, and then on, on the third or fourth week, whenever it was, and I'm in West Africa and I'm looking into, uh, you know, this great, cultural practice that people usually treat in a reverential way, like, you know, a National Geographic way. And then the way I decided to enter the story was to tell the audience, listen, I've just broke up with my girlfriend, which was true, and I'm really devastated, and I've got a photo of her, I've got a love letter from her, let's go see how voodoo curses work. And then, <laughs> uh, and then I went around and did that, and as soon as I did that, I thought, this is me. Like, I finally found what I'm meant to be doing. Not not specifically putting voodoo curses on the people, but doing this thing where you go into this situation that's usually treated very reverentially, and then I kind of put on this faux 
kind of naive, total arrogance that like I make it all about me and, and a little bit and, and the audience gets to know like these little bits about my backstory and then they're like, what? Huh? And, and, and then I guess everything I've done since then has just been a version of that. So that, yeah, that gave me, there was a lot of zen in that of finally finding out what I'm meant to do. She's actually been informing on you, John. <laughs> Apparently the curse is still effective, but that formed a, a pattern and, and later on you placed a fatwa on an Aussie icon. Oh, um, Rose McManus. Rose yes. McManus, uh, Australia's best friend <laughs> and a treasured, treasured member of the community. Yes, the uh, I don't. He said he was kind of cool with that. That's I, what he I said to of, you. It's not what he yeah, said to no. us. Well, yeah. Peter Hellier said he was cool with it too. He said, "I think he's kind of not cool with everyone asking him about it, though." So it's like in this weird way, I did put a curse on him because it's like it will be 10 years later and someone will still scream out <laughs> from a car how's the fat one rose <laughs> and so so i did actually weirdly put some kind of form of like the mark of cain on him um and yeah, n- not a, a legit fatwa but a, a faux fatwa charles can i just talk to you for a moment john just uh, just sit there if you wouldn't mind yeah no worries Look, Charles, um, fatwa, obviously that's a way into Islamic fundamentalism. Mm. He may still have contacts Some with good contacts, people. yes. I think maybe we should try and go down that path. Let's dig further, shall we? Do okay. you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Ray Martin. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Has, uh, <clears throat> well, he's made a lot of accusations against <laughs> you. Yes. Um, he's been a very good informant. What do you have to say for yourself? I've... I've tried to patch it up with him, but he just doesn't want to patch it up. It's He's doing that thing where, you know, that George Costanza thing where he's humiliated in a meeting and then he kind of spends this inordinate amount of time trying to, like, recreate the situation and come out the winner in that. So he he's doing this with this situation where I went to his house and pretended I was a journalist. I kind of turned the tables on the way that a current affair like turns up to people's houses. And Mm. then just the fact that they're caught unaware, they look guilty and suddenly, and Ray just did all the things, all the tropes that those people do. Like he stuck his hand on the camera. He grabbed me by the collar. So yeah, it made you think, oh, maybe when people are on a current affair and looking dicey, maybe part of the reason is because a journalist just turned up unaware and shoved the camera in their face. Anyway, he's had ages to sort of just reflect and kind of win by going, oh, yeah, it was just a joke. And I realise it's just a joke. And But he just won't. He won't let go of it. So it's like 10 years later and there's like four pages in his autobiography. Oh, gosh. Where, and then he get uh, this shows how like twisted it's got in his head is that I saw some interview uh, uh, on, for one of his TV shows or whatever and it came up and he tried to give this strangled thing where it's like, you know what I really like? I like the chaser because ah. when, when they do a prank, it's got real intelligence and a real good story arc and blah, such <laughs> rubbish and great lighting. And, and it, so because I am such a fan of that genre of television, you can imagine how upset I was when John Safran did his, like, his not up to scratch, not up to standards version of it. So he's still sort of like trying to win this thing that he'll never win. I think it, I think it is like the Rove Fatwa thing where, because people just always ask him, about it. I wish we'd thought I, of that. I've kind of cursed To him. be honest, what? it was such a good idea. And look, you had Shane Paxson with you. People might not recall, but Shane Paxson was someone who'd been bullied around by a current affair. And uh, look, they suggested he get a job. You were trying to get him into television. If yeah, anything, exactly. he was solving the problem that they'd identified. The other thing I'd, I'd like to just put on record, <laughs> I once did the Channel 9 election coverage and um, I got Bill Heffernan. I really got Bill Heffernan. 
and got him exploding. And Channel 9 did not broadcast it that night. And then at the after party, Ray Martin comes up to me and says, oh, I heard about your brilliant Bill Heffernan thing. Can I put it on the uh, Today Show or whatever it was? ACA, you know, the, yeah. Yeah, tomorrow morning. Like I'm doing the, the breakfast oh, right. wrap-up. And that's perfect sort of nice little sort of thing. So I gave him the tape and never saw the tape again. It never <laughs> went to air. He never returned my call. So he fooled you, in other yeah. words. He, he fooled me. Did you, you have a copy yeah, of the tape? No, I didn't. No, no, because I it, oh, my trusted God. Ray. I was <laughs> trust. You got played by Ray. I got played oh, by Ray. Oh, oh wow. Oh my I know. God, it, that's it hilarious. Also reflects badly on me being you know, naive. You should have done. You should have gone through his trash. You would have found, <laughs> found it. Yeah. All right, John. Um, but look, let's look. There is a serious side of this conversation, which is, um, sure. in order to place a fatwa on uh, Roe McManus, you would have had to talk to. Someone in that business, uh, you'd sure. have to talk to some kind of an imam. And obviously, that's the sort of conversation we're very interested in here, John. Can you tell us, Absolutely. how do you well, find someone to place a fight? How did you do it? Well, you have kind of researchers on the show and stuff, and you say what the idea is. So, from my point of view, it was just, you know, you know we need to find some sheikh who's, who's fatwa friendly. And there was a dude in, in Britain <laughs> who set up... The, uh, like the, the UK Sharia court. Is it like an online university thing? You just don't pay a bit of money and you get your No, 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 uh, more dodgy than that. And, uh, and so, yeah, there was this dude who just had a Sharia court and, uh, and so I went to him and we also, along the way, we, we met up with this other dude. I tried to get a fatwa from this other dude, uh, and his name was Abu Hamza and he had, oh, a, hook yes. for, he had a hook for a hand. And so he, he, we got to him, but he refused. He said, Rove's not worth a fatwa. He's too insignificant oh. for a fatwa. And then, and then, and I, I thought, oh, isn't that always the way? You're a big deal in Australia. And, but then you go to the UK and you're too insignificant to put a fatwa on. And then this other dude, I forget what the name of the Sharia court dude was, but he was like another uh, controversial dude. And he did put the fatwa on. And then when we had, we'd cut the story together and I... SBS said to me, I had a meeting and they said, listen, we're kind of worried that, uh, like just say people, fundamentalists are watching and they think there is actually the fatwa on Rove and you're like, we've put his life in danger. And I said, listen, don't worry about these two, this Abu Hamza, this other dude, don't worry about them. They're just like renter quote. You know, you know how in Australia you can just, there's just people who just say anything because they just want to get on the telly. That's what these guys are. They're harmless, blah, 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 blah. Then it's like cut to, I forget, like six months later and then both are kind of under investigation for this bombing and then cut to now. I, I, I've forgotten the timeline of when this has happened, but both of them are in jail. Mm. One, one of them was... Well, well, was one of them de got deported to Yeah, e deported from, yeah. from Yemen. One got deported from Yemen to the USA and I think he's, he's in prison in the USA and the other's in prison somewhere else. I think it was in Lebanon or something and mm. got... Anyway, so sorry, SBS, that I lied to get my story on air. <laughs> so and also, you, obviously, apologies to Rove McManus, who you've turned into the Salman Rushdie of Australia by the looks of it. Yes, but look, you've you've had lots of um, uh, connections with subversives over the years, and uh, in particular, uh, one Father Bob. Ah, he yes. worked with a lot. He, he's uh, well known to us authorities. Um, his rebellious kind of pro-poverty preaching that he does. <laughs> pro-poverty. Uh, how did that connection arise? How did you? become friendly with this uh, dissident? I slinked into his church one time because two separate people who knew I was interested in filming stuff about religion said, I should check out this dude. I took my mum to him because there was a wedding and I had to take my mum to 
this wedding and the priest is hilarious. And then someone else separately had a similar story and I just thought, who's a priest who's like getting good kind of Yelp reviews? Is, you know? is like, hilarious like, Melbourne slang for hilarious? Can we just yes, pick? Right, okay, it is. just to be clear. <laughs> and and so I, I rocked up to his church at uh, lunchtime and he he saw me straight away and then he immediately... It was like weird. Like he does like stand-up comedy, but there's only four old uh, Italian women there in the church. But he's still like he doesn't ad- adapt his act for them. He's not like these women aren't really here for comedy. They're here for a priest. So he was pray. a very engaging uh, Catholic yes. priest who you connected with Australia's youth, John Saffron. Yeah, correct. Fire Triple J. Uh, yeah, because the ABC Youth Network asked me. They said, "Oh, who do you want to co-host?" And just, I don't know why, just didn't, I, I don't think it's like a malicious way, but it's sort of troublemaking way. It was like, oh, it's pretty funny how, because you, you're meant to be all youthy and stuff on Triple J. Why don't I get a 70-year-old priest to be my co-host? <laughs> uh, but I was right, don't you reckon? Oh, absolutely. Look, he, yes. he married Craig Rucastle uh, oh, yes. and just did a beautiful job. And he, he's got the funkiest robes of any priest I've ever seen. It's all 70s classics. <laughs> so you did well. Look, let's move on to your true crime projects. What got you interested in uh, in kind of raking through all this stuff? Well, in the case of the first true crime book I did about a murder in Mississippi, it wasn't my fault. It's just I was uh, doing a TV show where I pranked a white supremacist as part of the TV show. And anyway, he started legal action against the ABC, so this story could never go to air. Anyway, that was that. Just this story was just left on the cutting room floor. Then 11 months after I'd been like hanging out with this white supremacist, I'd spent several days with him, he turns up murdered in, in Mississippi and, and this young black guy has been arrested and the young black guy says the white supremacist tried to make sexual advances on me, that's why I had to kill him. And I was like, what the, like, this is crazy. And then it just seemed like there's a genre of books called true crime books. Why don't I just try that? But it was quite, it was quite scary. I'm not, I'm not to make this all about me because obviously being around a murder is the main thing. But I was like... John, uh, you have already confessed that your entire approach <laughs> is to make everything about yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so but basically a court case was about to start and they weren't going to stop for me whilst I spent a year trying to get funding up um, for a documentary. So I just jumped on a plane with my dictaphone and notepad and thought, oh, I'll try to tell a story this way. And then I just enjoyed it so much, uh, researching a book compared with rocking up everywhere with a camera and, you know, then you have to upsell people to being on camera and then they... Once they know a camera is going, they don't say the cool stuff they said before the camera was on. And when you're just on your own, you can just do what you want. You can decide, oh, I'm going to sleep in my car tonight rather than drive eight hours back and things like that. And it's just kind of fun. John, we've got more questions about your most recent book. But before we ask them, Charles, do you feel like a coffee at all? Yeah, sure. Let's let's just go back in a moment. I'll get a short black. What? And maybe some banana bread. We're not getting coffee. We're not? It's, it's a pretext so we can chat. Ah, I get it. Look, we've got enough to get him, obviously. A lot oh, of this look, stuff's very suspicious. Yeah, I mean, people around him just keep dropping dead. For one thing. <laughs> but his, uh, his most recent book mm. depends what you mean by extremists going yeah. rogue with Australian deplorables. And he might be able to connect us with even more dodgy Australians who well, could turn him. I think he, he's our way in. I think what we should do is cut a deal with him and get him to give up all the people in that book. Yeah, because I just keep 
popping into his phone. Like we've been, mm. that phone is a gold mine. Oh yeah, I know. It's amazing. All right, let's try. We should probably it. give it back to him by the end if he's good. Yeah. Actually, you know what, Charles? You can genuinely get a coffee. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. During the mid-roll uh, ad break. Oh yeah. No, Bell wouldn't want to miss that. That's my favourite part. Right, John. Look, frankly, mate. You're in a bit of trouble. You've got a lot of dodgy connections. There's a trail of bodies. Rove and Shane Warne haven't forgiven you, and there's that carries yes. a lot of weight with us. And, and with the Australian government, of course. Absolutely. Yep. However, some good news for you. Your latest book is full of, uh, full of interesting evidence, isn't it, Charles? Mm, it is. There's, there's a lot of extremists that we're interested in talking to in your book. Would you be prepared to give them up? Hmm. Tell us a bit about them. You know, you scratch our back, we mm. let you out of this, uh, this <laughs> centre and take off the handcuffs, that kind of thing. Would that interest um, you? I imagine if this was to go down, it would be a bit like that time you thought you were getting Ray Martin, but Ray Martin ended up getting you. And that if I was... <laughs> really, if I, I'd be like talking to the authorities and you think I'm like, you're getting all this good stuff, but really... I'm kind of getting all this stuff, good stuff myself. And then my next book is about, you know, John Safran versus Azio, if you know what I mean. Oh, John Safran versus The Chaser. That's a TV series you should probably pitch. Anyway, (laughs) all right, let's see if we can pump you for information on this. Uh, The story of your involvement with these extremists uh, in the book starts with a rally in Melbourne. Can you tell us about that? I rocked up to this far-right rally that was being pitched as a skinhead rally by the left because the left-wingers wanted to protest it. And they said, all these skinheads are going to be out, these neo-Nazis on the streets, and because they're protesting against Muslims and multiculturalism. So I rocked up. And there were skinheads there, so they didn't lie. But then as well as that, they're mixed amongst the white nationalists. There was also people who weren't white at all. And, and one of the leaders of this right-wing movement was uh, an immigrant from Sri Lanka, and he stood on the back of the ute screaming into the microphone next to the white nationalist dude. And I was just, I was kind of confused about, how, what, 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 like, why are they here? And then also, why are the white nationalists putting up with them? And, and so I, I decided to jump down that rabbit hole. And, and didn't they even do a welcome to country or something? Yes, yes, they, they, they did. So your stereotypes <laughs> about people who stereotype people were wrong. Yeah, correct. You didn't realise how diverse the white supremacy movement is. <laughs> yes, I didn't realise how multicultural the anti-multicultural movement was. <laughs> but the it, sort of, if you want to know, like, in a nutshell, what the answer to that is that these were, these immigrants, these non-white immigrants were devout evangelical Christians who really didn't like Islam for that reason, you know, scriptural reasons. So they're like, oh, cool, we get to lay into the Muslims like we want. And then they kind of form strange bedfellows with the white nationalists who are against Muslims, not for Christian reasons, like just because they don't like immigrants and blah. And you also found that the left-wing anti-racist movement was a lot more white and bland, didn't you? (laughs) Well, uh, I don't know. Yes, no. There was uh, like, well, well, for instance, devout Muslims didn't really feel this cultural connection with the hard left Mm. that that they were going to turn up to the rallies. So there might have been people who were Muslim there, but, you you know, like you didn't have like heaps of women in hijabs and things like that turning up. So then in the book, you then Mm. go and and visit some of these extremists in their homes. We yes. saw you on the cameras, John, in fact. <laughs> Uh-oh. The hidden cameras, just so you know. But, yeah, can you tell us the, uh, the names of some of the groups you're in contact with? Because people might have heard them in the media. 
Uh, well, I, I hung out with people from the United Patriots front. They've all got their... their, their the acronyms got these, keep like, changing. It's very hard for us to keep up. And uh, I imagine yes. for you, it would have been even harder. Given that and then they always the sulk. Every, everyone's like, oh, I'm not a member of them. I'm just... I just turned up and I just spoke and... But I'm not a member of them. So, like, yeah, what one dude, I, I turned up to his house uh, at night because I, I particularly wanted to speak to him because he was a speaker at one of these far-right rallies. And he'd actually pointed me out in the crowd. Like, I'm there minding my own business. And he's there going, you know, there's a lot of these kind of left-wing bastards in the media, and they always say we're Nazis. And I see him out there right now, one of them, John Safran, and boo, and everyone boos me. And I thought, oh, this will be good for the book. Anyway, <laughs> so then I, then I decided to go to his house to find out what his problem was with me, this guy who was talking at this far-right rally. And then when I rock up, I ask him because he had an Italian surname and I said, oh, so you're like a Italian family. And he goes, oh, yeah, um, dad's Italian, mum's Aboriginal. And I'm like, what? What? Cool. <laughs> and I was like so excited that this kind of far right white nationalist was kind of um, had Aboriginal heritage. And then I'm, I see a little a baby crawl into the room and it's Asian. And I'm like, what? Hang on. This, hang on. So the half Italian, half Aboriginal uh, white nationalist has an Asian baby and he goes, oh yeah, yeah my wife's Vietnamese. And I'm like, this guy is the worst white nationalist ever. Like, So we're so multicultural <laughs> now in Australia that even the racists are culturally diverse is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Like in his case, 10 years ago, he probably wouldn't have been able to be in the far right. Cause if you watch like those Cronulla riot docos, mm. everyone's going wogs, get, get, get stuff, wogs and stuff. And he's, I guess he's a quote unquote wog. So he wouldn't have been welcome on the far right, but like, cause, cause our, our anti-multicultural movement is so multicultural and our intolerant movement is so tolerant. They're now allowing uh, Greeks and Italians and pretty much anyone into it. Well, and, and Vietnamese, 30 years ago, the Vietnamese yes. were the one, they were the Muslims of 30 years ago. Yes. So, John, just these groups in general, I was kind of wondering, reading the story, they often seem pretty pathetic, and but mm. then there are some elements in there that do seem a bit threatening. What was your read on that? How big a concern are these uh, far-right deplorables who you've been hanging out with? Oh, I think on an individual levels they can be. So it's not so much, uh, because there's a whole... A stew of things going on. So you have people who are like a combo of desperate for attention, plus possibly have mental health issues, plus spend too much time on the internet and believe conspiracy theories, plus have um, um, a guys who just want to fight. And, and so you can just have, you're absolutely like the wrong person could easily just go haywire and bad stuff could happen. And it's, it's on, on all sides, I reckon that could happen. It, uh, so, it, it, yeah, it was pretty uh, uh, depressing for me at, at, by the end of my journey because, yeah, there, there's no way I can feel I can honestly say, oh, oh, don't worry about it, guys. It's all kind of fine because, like, you just see, you know, like what happened in Manchester mm. with bombings and with people driving cars into people. Like, it really, you don't need an army to do that anymore. And I do think the pieces are in place, unfortunately, for things like that to happen in Australia. So there are loose cannons out there. Yes. But... In terms of the actual movements themselves, some of the bosses, they seem very PR conscious from what you say. Yeah, and, and then they screw up. I, I think the problem the far right is going to have or, or does have is they can kind of, what, what are those things called in politics where you put up balloons? Weather trouble, balloons. Weather, yeah, yeah. Weather balloons where you can like put up thoughts that the mainstream can't say. So they, they absolutely can like put, put out things that can't be said on Q&A and that can kind of like soak into the, the, 
the, the more popular imagination, but they're all too weird to actually become like leaders themselves, like in the mainstream. So they ironically have the same problem that women who wear full body burkas or whatever happens is like, there's just too many Australians who are like, that's weird. And so the far right was working at the very start of their, the current run because they pitch themselves as, bas- as basically being like Dick Smith. It's like, oh, you know, we just love Australia and we love flags and, you know, and we're sick of political correctness it's and stuff. an uncanny stuff. impression. <laughs> yes. So they, they're pitching themselves as that. And so that kind of worked when they were kind of an online community and they got people out to the rallies. But as soon as the crack started to appear and it's like, oh, that guy's kind of a Nazi. <laughs> it's, it's like not, not even not even their own audience wanted that. Their, their own audience needs to have their kind of like their anti-Islam sentiment kind of laundered through normality. It's like, oh, it's, you know, it's, we're very, we're just normal people and, and, and being radical is not normal. So, so as soon as these far-right people just come across as too kind of anxious and antagonistic everyone like their, their own crowd most of them kind of back away and you're just left left with the street fighters did you meet anyone who you thought was an agent provocateur who was who was someone in there who actually didn't believe in any of it but had been planted there to sort of keep oh, them I off wish. the rails i wish god maybe there was i had never thought about that before no i i, I can't say i spotted anyone but i wish i did unless I'm throwing you off the scent, and it is I who am the agent provocateur. That was my next question, John. Are you (laughs) working with any other arm of the government? No, I only I got approached by the Australian Federal Police at a interfaith march. You like usually I don't like going to the peaceful things, but (laughs) when you're writing a book, you kind of I was just like maybe I'll miss out on something. Yeah, so I went to this interfaith march, and these. Uh, Australian Federal Police dudes approached me and just said, oh, listen, want to catch up for a coffee? And it's like, it's nothing, nothing big. It's just, it was, it, we just want to like, we like to talk and it's just about the community and, you know. And would you wear microphones? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so I caught up with them for coffee. They paid. That's r- It's rare that we <laughs> shout anyone coffee, isn't it, Charles? <laughs> yeah. Was it good coffee? Yeah, it was. It was like down... It was down the street from where where I lived. I thought I'd kind of like if they weren't if they were going to plant bugs in my house or whatever. I just thought like why make it difficult for them? He was in, he was in, he's from Melbourne. Of course, he's going to say the coffee's good. Um, so John, that's the far right. What about the the ISIS sympathisers? And this is yes. the thing that everyone, including the far right, ties himself up in knots about is the danger being posed, people being radicalised. How much of that did you see? Oh, I hung out with a couple of Aussie. ISIS supporters, and uh, one of them is currently in jail, <laughs> awaiting a trial. So I can't really talk about him because you know what's that, bro? Where you kind of derail subjudice or whatever. But like talking more broadly and talking about others or whatever, yeah. Like it was, I guess, the real interesting thing to me and maybe to other people would be about how, uh, like, they're like in a cult. It's sort of like the equivalent of, like we seem to understand that if like someone's like a, uh, like a real radical Scientologist or Christian who believes in hell, we kind of go, oh, it's that kind of person. I get that. But because there's all this other stuff tied in with uh, questions of Islam, like it's like Islamophobia and racism and stuff, it's kind of really easy to think these radicals are basically, oh, they're just like, you know, they're just basically like lefties who are against the government and against conservatives and, and, but they wear, you know, they, they wear, they've got beards or something. And it's like, no, they're really devout and they, they believe magical things and they're kind of under the spell of their religious texts and their religion. 
And uh, I mean, a good example of this is there's a particular dude uh, who's not in my book who's been in jail in Australia. And, you know, they say he trained overseas and he's been problems in Australia and he's radical and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so something I know about him is when he was overseas, he trained to be an exorcist as well. And he's done exorcisms in Australia. That's well, another like, TV series of yours, John. <laughs> yeah, but, but it kind of just shows how these people are, like, imagine your mindset if that's sort of what you're doing. It, it, like, mm. that is so different to, like, oh, hey, I hate America because I'm a lefty and, you know, I, ha- I hate the government because I'm a lefty. And, you know, it's just, it's a different, totally different uh, kind of scene. And, and so, so it is kind of weird, this crossover between like the the left and some of those radicals and and can you just run us through the process of that radicalization is it as, as simple as they watch lots of youtube videos because that's the thing that's always mystified me is how can yep. watching a whole lot of youtube videos get you to the point where you're prepared to oh charles we've studied that it's if they're cat videos they make you so angry about <laughs> western civilization that uh, what, what did you find john well, you, you only end, ever end up talking to who you end up talking to. So I'm, I'm sure there are very philosophical. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there are people who've been radicalised and and they're sort of like passive and like that. But I, I just actually didn't talk to those people. I I talked to people who, for whatever reason, I felt were really on the front foot and really in, in control of things. So actually, more likely to be the kind of people that might radicalise others. And a big part of it is they were believers and they. They believed in this messianic age coming where uh, they have to do their part to help bring bring about this messianic age and that's what they wanted to do. They were, they were just believers and it was kind of like, it's kind of like hard to know how to address that <laughs> because, you know, if, if, if they were saying, oh, we don't like it because there's Islamophobia in Australia or something, you can go, okay, let's kind of try to get rid of Islamophobia. When I, when I, I think in some ways, even though there's an overlap, they're kind of separate. It's like there's Islamophobia that's awful and people should stop doing it. But that's sort of because you should stop doing it and because it's awful to Muslims. Mm. But I don't think, I'm, I think there's a limit to how much succeeding at stopping at Islamophobia in Australia is going to affect these people who are just so radicalised and, and have such a belief that they have to play out these acts and go overseas to try to bring about the Messiah. I don't, but I that, that apocalyptic idea, though, is common to the American right, isn't it? That, um, yeah. that, that it's okay if the war comes on because it will lead to a glorious afterlife of some sort. I mean, that's yeah, quite yeah, that, scary that, from anywhere, isn't it? Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. So uh, the, the, I think a way you can de-radicalise these that I've heard um, uh, is that you you get people who have authority and who are uh, uh, believing Muslims who just believe, they go, they believe, yes, the Messiah is going to come, but this kind of little version of it is not the right one. So, no, so you kind of say to these radicals going, you're right, you are absolutely right the apocalypse is going to come and you have to be part of it. But what's happening in Syria at the moment, that's sort of, that's not it. And, and I think the, yeah, some of the the security people have told me that Muslims coming back from Syria and then, and and Iraq and then telling the people in their community that, oh, it's all a dud. It's like, this isn't it, um, is, is really helpful. Uh, That sounds like a good thing to encourage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Guys, it's not yet. It's not, not here now. Yeah. Dom, would you like to get a coffee? Sure. So what do you want to discuss? Nothing, I just really want a coffee. Do you want banana bread too? It's all I can think about. Charles, we're in the middle of an interrogation. You can do this afterwards. 
We've got to ask him about the messages he gets on his phone. Oh, yeah, I've been pranking him for months with death threats. Hilarious. I wonder whether any of mine are his favourite. You can have a coffee after. So throughout the process of writing your book, uh, randoms get contacting your phone. Yeah. Uh, now, we've been monitoring your messages for a long time and Uh-oh. they have been very useful. <laughs> but can you tell us about some of your favourite messages? Uh, it's, it's, it's so confusing because you get threats. I guess threats are always fun. And it's so hard to know what it means because, like lots of people, I'm just open 24 hours, seven days a week, and it's pretty easy to get in contact with me. So it's like, do I, am I, do I care or am I scared? Or Yeah, but gen- generally... Uh, Generally, I was kind of cool with it and just thought, oh, good for the book. You got some useful info from some of the people too. I mean, you, you kind of yeah. became a, an anti-radicalisation hotline. Like people sent you concerning things. Oh, yeah, for, uh, yeah, for sure. Not like, oh, well, I, I'd get wind of something that one side were planning, like with a rally, and then it was like, do I tell the other side? Like now that I, now that I know from the, from the right-wingers that they're moving this rally to another location to try to avoid the left counter-protesting. Do I dob on them to the left? or, and Yeah, so, so there, there was that moral, moral scruples. You were the spider thing. at the centre of the web, weren't you? I was. <laughs> All right. I, now, was, I was the, the octopus with a tentacle in each camp. John, we always um, like to ask at this point uh, in the conversation some, uh, some, just some questions. It, as you know, citizenship tests are a thing now. In Australia. So we've just got a few yes. questions if we can oh. uh, throw them at you. Yes. So first of all, how many test wickets did Shane Warne take? Uh, the uh, Answer in your own time. It's <laughs> yeah. fine. Shane, uh, the, uh, this seems very, uh, this it seems like spiteful because it, it seems like you're trying to get me back because I <laughs> tried to break his Nicorette contract. Look, he does consult with us, <laughs> John. The number's high. He's a very, very valued asset to this community. Okay, uh, 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 17. <laughs> wow, that is treasonous to say <laughs> yeah. it was 17. Uh, now, you're from Melbourne, so you might have more chance on this one. How many Melbourne Cups did Farlap win? Uh, uh, let's say one. Yes, that's actually correct. In 1930. Well done. That's a, that's a tick. Wasn't expecting you to know that one. What was Don Bradman's batting average? Uh-oh. Well, is that that one where it was like nearly 100, but then he screwed it up by one hit or some crap? Well, everyone remembers the failure, don't they? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, finally, what is the most gross ingredient in Vegemite? Uh, the um, a yeast. That is incorrect. Yeah. There, is, there is no gross ingredient in Vegemite. <laughs> That's a trick question. It's a national icon. <laughs> Look, I think we've heard all that we need to hear, haven't we, Charles? Yes. I think we just might need to step out for a second, John. Don't worry. It's a, it, this is perfectly routine. Okay, what do you reckon? Look, the information was, was useful, but it's all in his book. Mm. You know, I don't think he gave us anything particularly new. Do you think maybe we should just set him loose, but keep tracking him, but sort of reassure him that he's not being tracked anymore so that... Yeah, know, we yeah. just implant some kind of tracker on him as he leaves. I've got his phone, so I'll, as I give it back to him, put the GPS on it. Okay. Okay. John, at this time you're free to go. Uh, we're not going to keep monitoring or surveilling you. Um, oh, that's great. And look, would you be willing to perhaps go undercover for us? I've know in the book there's a photo of you in disguise. Could you perhaps? Oh, absolutely. Keep I, doing I'm, that for us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm happy to go undercover for anyone. Okay. It's certainly true that throughout the book people do keep going, oh, that's the comedian John Saffron from the ABC. <laughs> so is there anything more we could do to perhaps disguise you? Uh, I don't know, some of uh, uh, Chaz's kind of outfits 
from the, from the show. You know, he's got the Asama app. Would you be willing to go the full Asama? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, and it'll be much better lit than all your previous <laughs> work. Uh, here's your phone back. Thank you. Thanks for your time. <laughs> and the book is Depends What You Mean by Extremist, Going Rogue with Australian Deplorables. Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app. And remember, no one is safe. No one.